Now, welcome to this celebration of Jesus' resurrection. This just outpouring of what he's done in our lives. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we're gathered. Some of you may not know that. We are so glad that you're here with us. Maybe you're here, frankly, under a little duress. We're like, okay, I'll come. Or there's some good eats afterwards. It's all right. I'll, I'll join you. But we are so glad that you're with us because of what God is doing. This is just a, a foretaste of what it will be like when we are with him in heaven for eternity. We're privileged to praise him. We give all thanks to him. And the only reason we're here is because of his resurrection, because of his death and his resur resur resurrection, which says it is true. He is alive. I had a marvelous evening last night. Vicki and I went to the bridge, which is a community of people that are part of the recovery world. They're looking for encouragement. They're looking for fellowship. They're looking for a word. And boy, was it brought yesterday. It was brought by a man named Sean Gordon. I met him about six months ago. Pastor Eric and I went on a ministry visitation. Sean was part of that team. We got to know his story a little bit. Sean was a guy who was raised in San Francisco, as he says, in the hood. That was pretty far from my own experience, but I'm listening to him with rapt attention about what his life was like and how it was marked by violence and abuse and the tragic and early death of his dad. And just a few years later, while he was a, still a teenager, he lost his mom. And so what did he know out of that environment? All he knew was violence, and so he just did what he saw other people doing. Joined a gang, took drugs, sold drugs, made that part of his life, made sure he was outdoing the other gang members and what gang members are doing. He didn't care. He knew life was going to be short. He knew it was already hard. He was so convinced that his life was brief that at 21, he took cash that he'd made from his drug sales and took a bunch of it down to a local mortuary and bought himself a funeral package, put the inscription on it, purchased the casket, knew that his time was limited. That was what life was like for Sean. But God had other plans for him. God rescued him by taking him to prison. He didn't get done on the streets, but he was put in jail. And he said, in jail, I wasn't changed. He actually did two stretches. The first one, all he did was plot uh, how he would get back and pay back people for what they'd done to him. And he was so angry, so mad at just life that he took on the correctional guards. That's bad. It's a year and a half in solitary, just dealing with that. And so when he gets out, he's ready to do his thing. But God had other plans. God had a resurrected life for him. He met a woman and fell in love, and they got married, and he had a child. But did that change him? Was that life circumstance going to change Sean? No, he said it did not. And so pretty soon he was back in jail, back in prison. And it was there he met a fellow inmate who just always had a smile on his face. To hear Sean tell it, it was an annoying smile on his face. It's like, wow, when is this guy going to stop smiling? But then the guy wanted to talk to him on a regular basis, would come into his cell and say, hey, can I share with you what has changed my life? Who has changed my life? And Sean would say, in no uncertain terms, as only prisoners can say, no, I am not interested. But it didn't stop this friend, 
Sean's friend, from relentlessly pursuing him with the gospel. And then he gave him a Bible. Sean started to change. Started to see his heart melt by the, by the gift of life that he'd given him, privileged him to be a dad, by giving him the word of God that showed him that he belonged to the Lord. And that was how Sean began to change. He's giving that testimony last night, blessing us. And I'm thinking, this is what the resurrected life looks like in action. Now, we're going to turn to our text in just a minute, but this is what resurrection looks like. To take somebody who was on a short, fast trip to death, already planned his funeral, and turns him around and raises him up, gives him a ministry, gives him a family. Sean got out later on, and he did not go back. By his own testimony, it wasn't easy. And if you get a chance, and if he comes back and visits the bridge at some point, I mean, that's worth hearing. I know Pastor Toby will, will promote that. But it was just this marvelous testimony of what God can do, what God is up to in each person's life, if we would just hear him and let him do that in our lives. Let's turn to our text. You heard um, one of the passages that was read was Matthew 28, and it's beginning in verse 1. It's really that first Easter morning, if you will. It's that time where we're celebrating Easter, what took place almost 2,000 years ago. We're here with joy. We're here with wonder. We're here with gladness. We're here with thanksgiving. But almost 2,000 years ago, we find this text opening up with the story of two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and they're on their way to the tomb because Jesus has just been crucified two days earlier. And they're on the tomb to anoint his body. And Mark adds the detail that they're, as they're on their way, they're talking about who's going to move that big stone away that's covering the tomb. And then Matthew says as they get there, there's an earthquake, a violent earthquake that so shakes everything, it removes the stone and makes the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb fall down like dead men. And the women see that the tomb is empty, is open. And at least that's one problem solved. They know who moved the stone. And an angel's sitting on the stone and he says, I know, don't be afraid. I know who you seek, Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And then he gives them instructions to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. And as they're going along, who do they meet? They meet Jesus himself. And Jesus says to them, Hi. Literally, that's the translation of the Greek. Hi. Greetings. Like, no big deal. Can you imagine if you ran into a resurrected Jesus, your Lord, who you'd called Lord, who you'd call Rabbi, and you see him, and you, you thought he was dead, you, as, as much as you know, you knew that he had died, and then he just comes and he says, Hi. It's like, what is that? At least, like, you know, just like, what happened? Jesus, get, get a little more excited. And they grasp, they're excited, they grasp his feet. They hang on to him and they, and they start to worship him. And this passage tells us two things that are really vital. First, it tells us that Jesus' resurrection is real. He was bodily, physically raised from the dead. He was not a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. This wasn't just some kind of collective psychological phenomenon. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't a presence. They are looking at Jesus, they are hearing Jesus talk to them, and they are grasping his feet bodily and physically. It is so important that we know that for a fact. And this is what the Word of God tells us. The second thing that we see 
is that I think one of the reasons Jesus is just kind of chill about it is that, as the angel says, he is risen just as he said. Just as he said. Jesus knew that he would be raised from the dead because he had every confidence in God, his heavenly Father. The Lord had said, had already shown Jesus during his earthly ministry that he would have to suffer and die. And what? And on the third day, be raised to life. So Jesus is like, hi, because he already knows what God has promised. And God was faithful to him. And what happened? We we don't want to miss verse 6. Because when it says that he was risen, just as he said, it validates everything that Jesus said. When Jesus says to his disciples, I have to go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in fact that happened. That's what they see. They see the risen Lord in front of them. It validates everything that he said. You know, there are plenty of false prophets and false messiahs in Jesus' day. People that claim to be somebody, and they said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm the messiah. I'm going to take it to the Romans. These guys are going down. Follow me. And eventually the Romans would catch up with that guy. That guy would be killed. And what would happen to the group? Scattered. Why? False prophet. What he said didn't come to pass. And if Jesus had just stayed in that grave, everything that he said, we wouldn't have to believe because it wouldn't be true. But the fact that he was raised out of the grave, raised by God the Father, that changes everything. If you're looking for kind of a shorthand version of what we're talking about today, it's that the resurrection changes everything. It changes what we know about God. How do you know who God is? You guys have colleagues at work, you have people in your family, you have neighbors. If you ask them who is God, they'd say, I don't know. I'm not even sure there is a God. And they might ask you, who is God? And you would say, let me show you who God is. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. You know, remember that time where Jesus is with his disciples and Philip asks them later on in their ministry, this is about into year three of their three-year ministry together, is like, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. See, Philip sounds really pious, and it'll be enough for us. And then Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you haven't seen? Have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And we can take those words to the bank. If we've seen Jesus, then we know God. What do we know about God? If you look at Jesus' ministry, you see how he starts by healing people, how he heals the sick, how he heals those that are demon-possessed. He has care, compassion for those. He wants to restore people to the way God originally intended them to live and to be. And that's what his healing ministry says. It also speaks to his power over anything that's been created. Jesus, part of the Godhead, is the creator. Anything else that is in this world is part of the creation. He has authority over that. So he's healing us. He's restoring us. He's coming against all the idols of his day, which, by the way, remain the idols of our day. He speaks against wealth, where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Don't get bogged down in the pursuit of riches. Don't be so busy making a life, making a living that you forget to live. He comes against wealth. He comes against power. Some of us think, if I just have enough responsibility, if I just have enough power, if I just have enough position in my company, then I'll be satisfied. He comes against that. He comes against spiritual malpractice. If you read the Gospels over and over again, he is 
pounding on the Pharisees, the people that were making man-made rules, disguising the things that God has said, and all they were doing is wearing people down and putting guilt on them. And he comes against that. And he says, I will give you what true spirituality is. True spirituality is God the Father has forgiven you for everything that you have done, past, present, and future. If you would just receive that gift, now later on we'll talk about what he did to make that actual, actually come about, but he is preaching forgiveness. He is showing that God loves us. He's showing basically at its heart that God wants to restore the relationship that he once had with humankind through the work of his son. Adam and Eve in the garden, in the Lord's presence, with the Lord's provision, with the Lord's power, they leave it all. They decide that they know better than God. And God said, I can't have that impurity with my purity. I can't have that lack of love connected with me who is pure love and pure beauty. And so even though you can't be with me, I will rescue you over time. And I will rescue you through what my son Jesus did to make atonement. See, when God rescues us, he does in a way that is keeping with his justice and with his fairness. He is holy. He is pure. So on the one hand, he says, you can't be with me until you're rescued. But on the other hand, I will rescue you. So if we want to know the true God, we look no farther than Jesus. If we want to know the true God, his resurrection validates everything that Scripture tells us about who God is. And then the resurrection validates everything about what our biggest problem is. What's the biggest problem that you face? What's the biggest problem that is out there? What was the biggest problem in Jesus' day? If you ask the average Israelite on the street, you do an Israelite on the street interview, and you say, what's your biggest problem? And say, it's these Romans. These guys are awful. They are occupying our land. They are taking over you know, a lot of our economy. We're way overtaxed. They got this sort of half-Jewish, half-not guy on the throne. They are working us hard. They are working our nerves. The Romans, if we could just get rid of those guys and be restored to that independent nation that we once were, it would be okay. And then don't get me started about what's going on in my own personal life. I got this little guy, Zacchaeus, who's always dogging me for more money. He's always asking for more taxes. I got my mother-in-law just moved in with me. This is driving me crazy. Externalities. If you ask people now, what, what's our biggest issue? What would they say? They'd say, well, we got economic issues. We've got global issues. We've got environmental issues. We have social issues. I got stuff going on in my own family. I've got a mother-in-law. I've got this. I've got that. My favorite sports team made the world's worst draft picks last year. What are we going to do with that? We have all manner of issues that are where? Out there. And those are important, but those aren't our biggest problems. Our biggest issues aren't what's out there. It's what's in here. It's what's in our heart. It's the kind of things that, that keep us separated from God. Our biggest issue is, a, is that we want to live life the way we want to live it. We want to live it for our glory, our goals, our whatever we think is good. And we actually think we're better than others because we see them living more raggedy than we are. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe God grades on the curve, in which case I'm all right. But he doesn't. He looks at our heart. He sees if we are separated from him, and he knows that we are. He knows that we are deceived 
by what the Bible calls sin. Sin is a word that is a shorthand for everything that is counter to who God is or what he wants for us or the good life that he has always planned for us. Not just a life in this world, but a life eternal. That's what sin, sin drives us away. We may think we can control it, but we can't. You know, things might start as a so-called innocent flirtation, but then it goes to an emotional connection, and then it goes to a physical affair. And then it goes to the destruction of a marriage. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, causes you to stay longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. You might be disgruntled at work, thinking you are undervalued and underpaid. So they're not going to miss this. Yeah, I could take that. Or, you know, what's another sick day? And they owe me more sick days anyway. And pretty soon the performance report shows up like, man, how did I get that? Or you get let go. These are sins that start as little things that grow into big things. These are everyday things. And the ugly truth about sin, if you're really honest, is when it works in our lives, it hurts the very people that we love the most. Look at the people that are most impacted by your sin. Chances are there are people in your family, there are people in your life, there are people that you care about the most. And God said, I don't want you to live like that. That's not my design for you. That's not my plan for you. But I know that this heart of yours is, tends to want what it wants, and it does not want me. So I'm going to make a way where there is no way for you. I'm going to make a way by sending Jesus, my one and only son, to die for you. I'm going to ask him to do on your behalf what you cannot do for yourself. Sin always leads to death. The fact that we die physically is just a representation. It's the end of the road of what happens with sin. What, how do we come against that? What hope is there for us who are caught up in that without Jesus? There is no hope. We are not only, Scripture says we are slaves to sin. There's no other way that we can get out of this except what Jesus has done. And so it says, while we were still helpless, Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what we're celebrating, what the resurrection validates is what Jesus did on the cross for us. That, that the Lord made a way that we could be reconnected with him. That we could have not only power and sustaining and peace in this life, like Sean's friend in prison, the man who was always smiling, who had peace in spite of being in, in the prison for 12 years. We can have God's peace because of what he has done. We can't bring that peace to ourselves, by the way. Doesn't matter how much you give, no matter how many volunteer hours you, you muster, doesn't, you cannot make up for what you owe God. You cannot make up for how you've hurt people. All you can do is receive what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And that still is hard for us to get and, and take in. But Jesus has dealt with our number one issue. It's not the things that are going out the, on out there. It's what's going on in our lives. He who was who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us. It is called, in some circles, the great exchange. What did, what did I give God if I come to this cross? 
When I come to that cross, all I can bring him is who I am. My inadequate efforts, my selfish desires, my lustful thoughts, my sneaky schemes, my putrid sin, all the things that put Jesus on that cross to begin with. That's all I can offer him. That's it. Now, I can say I did some good things. I helped my daughter with her physics problem set. You don't know how tough that was for me. You don't know how tough it was for her. But you don't know how tough that is. So I did these good things. And God says, that, you know, we're, we're, this, this is not a plus minus column. We're not an accountant here. You cannot make up for the basic issue, which is your heart is away from God. Only Jesus can do that. All you can do, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Is life eternal, is eternal life. You just receive that. God not only died for our sin, we gave him every, all those rags, and he in turn gave us what Scripture calls righteousness, righteous standing. When God looks at us now, if you've received his gifts, he looks and he says, I see a man, a woman, a boy, a girl who is holy, who is pure, who is righteous, who can be in my presence, who I can have fellowship with, who experiences my love, who will know my power, who will see my blessing, who will know that I have a hope and a future for them. And no matter what they go through in this life, I will bring them safely through it and into life eternal. That's what God gave us through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen! This is Resurrection Sunday! What else can be greater? What else is greater than that? Quick quiz. Let's take, you know, what would the survey be? What could possibly be greater than life eternal through what Jesus did for us? And the resurrection validates everything that Jesus said about it. If there was no resurrection, then this is not true, and we are wasting our time. If only for this life we have lived with Jesus and receiving his blessings, we are men most to be pitied. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so the Lord... Gives, tells us, the resurrection shows us what God is really like, who he truly is. The resurrection deals with our biggest issue, which is not what's going on out there, but what's going on in here. And finally, the resurrection changes our life. Changes our life. It, look, look what happens when Paul runs in to Jesus. Well, you don't even have to start with Paul. You can start with the two women at the tomb. Are, are they having a big group hug? No, they're worshiping Jesus, but he immediately says what? Go tell the disciples to go into Galilee, and there I will meet them. The Lord is about mission. The Lord is about you go tell the good news that I have been raised from the dead. If you could say one thing to somebody you loved and care about, what would it be? Jesus is alive? That's a good thing to say. That's a nice way of saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. What would it be? Would you give them a tip? Would you give them some investment advice? Would you give them lucky numbers? What would you give them? You give them Jesus. You point them in the direction that he is. This is what Jesus is saying to the two women. Point the disciples in my direction. Let them see the risen Lord. What did Sean's friend do? Pointed Sean in the direction of the Lord. What happens to Paul when he is on his way to arrest and murder more Christians because this was a bogus sect? This was a cancer that needed to be eradicated. And he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life is changed. He meets the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And so later, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says this 
He says, for Christ's love compels us, meaning he and his ministry team, because we are convinced that one died for all, that Jesus died for all. Therefore, all of us died. All of us owe our lives to him. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus changed the course of your life. Your life is not your own, but you were bought with a price. He changed the purpose of your life. If you hear a little bit more about Sean's story, not only does he start some churches, he's, he's mentored, he's discipled. as part of Francis Chan's group. He hooked up with those guys, and his life was changed. He went to culinary school, and now he's a chef at Huli Huli Restaurant. Yeah, that's a shameless plug. Huli Huli. It's on 4100 Third Street in San Francisco. It is designed to be a place of redemption, a place of resurrection. Not only do they serve good Hawaiian barbecue, but they are also, the employees are people, are guys, men and women that have come out of prison, men and women that are in rehab, men and women. When you come out of that situation, what's your resume look like? Where are you going to get a job? Well, if you're looking for a job, you could go to Huli Huli, because these guys are saying there is a resurrected life that you need to experience. There is redemption. There is hope. And so that's what Sean's a part of. God raised him up. God changed his life. Now, he'll tell you that it's not easy. He'll tell you that there's still those temptations. You know, even though we were slaves to sin and God freed us from that, that and sin lost its power, that doesn't mean that sin lost its voice. And it's still yapping. And, it's still, and sometimes, some days you get up and it's loud. You're like, man, turn that down. How do you turn it down? You go to the Lord. You say, Lord, help me. There's a country and western song that says it's hard to stumble when you're down on your knees. Man, when you are tempted, when the enemy's coming at you again to remind you about your own life, you get down on your knees and you say, Lord, help me. My life has changed. I'm not the same person. You are not the same person. If you know Jesus Christ, you're absolutely new and different in the Lord. He changed your life. He changed Sean's life. Everyone here who knows the Lord has a resurrection story. And if you do not yet know him, then we have an opportunity just to, to come and respond to that in a little bit. But I want to talk about responses now. When you hear what Jesus did for us on the cross, when you know that it got validated by the resurrection, and that's what we're celebrating, how do you respond and I have a, a few friends in mind when I think of this. I think of some of my Christian friends who I talk to, and they are just saying, honestly, God and I are kind of in neutral corners. You know, I kind of did. I was fervent for the Lord for a while. But instead of him moving me in the direction I thought he was and blessing me here, I found myself over there. Like, Lord, what, uh, what happened? Why didn't you give me that? over here? Why am I over there? Lord, why did you take away what I knew you'd given me, that job, that relationship, that person? Why is it now in this place of decay or separation or it is ended? And so honestly, I'm just going to trust God for the afterlife. I'm going to make my way as best I can, but he in, in this life, he and I are we're kind of on speaking terms, but sort of on an emergency basis. Like 911, if I'm really in a jam, I'll call you. Some of you might be here with your 911 alarm. And if that's you, I, I just want to say as a pastor, 
that's really understandable. I don't want you to feel condemnation at this point. Even John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, heralded Jesus' arrival, later on had to send his own ministry team to Jesus and to say, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that, that we're really supposed to come? And Jesus said, Go back and tell John that the blind see, dead are raised. In other words, look at what my ministry is doing. If you want to know, is Jesus alive and well? Go see where he's active. Go talk to people like Sean. Go talk to folks who are seeing the Lord's resurrection power in their lives and in their situations. And be encouraged by them. My prayer for you is the same prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I pray that we would know the incomparably great power, that resurrection power. If you're not seeing that in your life right now, ask God for it. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened. Seek and you will find. Go for it. Be encouraged this day, this resurrection day, that when Jesus said that if you ask, he will answer, if you knock, he will open, then do those things. Don't let the confusion of the past or your current situation. Don't let the pain of what you're going through keep you away from connecting to the one who can help you, who loves you, who has a plan for you and a hope for you, who will turn whatever you're going through, whatever health issues, whatever financial issues, whatever relationship issues, he will redeem those. That means to make them good for his glory, to help others. Some relationships are gone. Some of you had a marriage and that person is remarried. But God can still use that in the lives of others. Still use that to show you who he is in your own life. I don't know how he's going to do that. But I know that he is the one who can do that. And without him, we have no hope. So if you're in that neutral corner, if you're just in that space with the Lord, pray that prayer. Say, Lord, help me. So that's one set of my friends. I have another set of friends who say, man, it's great that you're a pastor, but honestly, I just don't believe it. Like Jesus, it sounded good, but if I'm really honest, I just think it's a myth. I think he's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, all kinds of stuff, and he seems really powerful, and they said he raised people from the dead and he healed them, but he's just a man behind the curtain. No great power. You know, just, just kind of a myth. There's scholars, that, so-called scholars, who say Jesus was just a Jewish peasant. He walked around. He claimed he was a Messiah like a lot of people did. And eventually the Romans caught up with him, and they killed him, and game over. End of story. A myth. Is that true? No. Paul. Now, Paul, the apostle, heard this. Paul is preaching to a culture that not only would have said that Jesus is a myth because it did not believe in resurrection. And that was the other text that was read today about from 1 Corinthians 15. 
Here's what it says in the message. The message version of that same text says, If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. <laughs> Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a lawyer. He is an excellent lawyer, and he is making his case based on evidence. And if you go to the first part of that uh, 15th chapter in 1 Corinthians, you hear Paul saying, hey, Jesus appeared first to, to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to more than 500. These are eyewitnesses, many of whom are still living with us today, he says. He is saying that the resurrection is a historical fact. And as a good lawyer, he's also saying, if it's not a fact, then we're wasting everybody's time. We're pitiful people because we claim that it's happened, but it hasn't. And what's worse is you're still stuck in your sins. And the God we claim to represent, we actually don't really know who he is. It all hinges on the resurrection, the physical, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Don't let anybody try to knock that down. Don't let anybody just say, hey, it's just a feeling, and it is like the great Oz, Jesus, and look, you had the power, you had the brains, you know, you had the courage, cowardly lion, you had these things. No, Christ makes the way. Jesus gives us what we need. We are created in his image and to be glorifying to him. Historical fact. So when your friends say it's a myth, you're like, I respectfully disagree. Check it out for yourself. My own testimony, I had to figure out when I got to college and all these opportunities were open to me that I didn't have in high school because I was pretty protected. I get to college and I'm like, wow, there's all kinds of fun stuff here. Fun from a kind of human, selfish, sinful kind of fun. This is, yeah, this is great. I mean, God, this. So I had to figure out, was Jesus just part of, just kind of like Wizard of Oz? Just kind of pretend something that mom and dad tell you just so they kind of keep you in line. But when you're old enough, you sort of figure it out. No. And what got me there was the reality of his resurrection. If you see and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, you have no other choice but to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and King of Kings who died for us, who will bring us into eternity if we would what? If we would just give our lives to him. And so I want to talk to my other set of friends, not only ones who say it's a myth, but here's what I also hear sometimes. You know what? Gordon, it's great that you're a pastor. That's your truth. But I got my truth. Okay, what's your truth? Oh, my truth is... You know, if there are multiple truths, if, if there are a whole bunch of different ways that you go to be with the Lord forever, that you could have life eternal, if we could just be one with the cosmos... Sometimes you hear that. I don't know what that means, but you could be one with the cosmos. If that was true, would the Lord God, the Father, have to put his son on the cross for us? Would he have to be bruised for our iniquity? Would he have to be crushed for our sin? 
Would he have to be pierced for our transgressions? What kind of God puts his son on the cross to suffer for us and says there's yet another way? Man, if there was another way, I'd be happy to tell you what it is. But I can't see that the God who created everything, every principality, every power, every mysterious thing, God sits over all that as the creator. And he says, this is the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It sounds selfish and scandalous, but if there was another way, he would have told us. There isn't. There is that, that exclusivity is offensive to some. I get it. But I would just say, come to the resurrection day. Come to that place of saying, Lord, were you raised bodily from the grave? And Paul said, we know that he was. And because he is, he now invites you to participate. He invites you to receive what he's done for us on the cross. He invites everyone here who doesn't know him that way to say, Lord and Savior, that's who you are to me.